You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Is it possible to become famous if you don't really exist? When you believe that everything in life is a story, the answer is yes. Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome once again to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I'm excited to announce that our sponsor is Audible. They are offering you, our listeners, a free download of one of your favorite audio books. You get to choose from 180,000 titles, and you also get a one-month free trial of Audible's entire service. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. That is www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. For your convenience, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio, as well as the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. Because the theme of the show is change your story, change your life, I've created a free gift for you, my listeners. It is an ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life in Business. You can download it immediately at www.changeyourstorypodcast.com. One of the most rewarding things in this podcast for me is my ongoing dialogue with you, my storytellers, my listeners. Let's continue that dialogue. Keep sending your comments about what you're getting from the show and what you'd like to see in it going forward. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. I promise to read every message I receive, and to choose some of them to share with you on the show. Today's guest is a man who will shed light on my opening question. He's a fascinating, complex, and controversial figure. Tom Cruise was in an award-nominated Hollywood movie called Magnolia, where he played a character based on our guest. This man gave birth to a subculture of pickup artists. Men Who Master the Art of Seduction. Some of you may know the book called The Game. It's by Neil Strauss, who went by the name of Style in the pickup world. Neil was the leader and chief mentor to men who wanted to learn the secrets of seduction. Neil's mentor is today's guest. His expertise has evolved. Now he teaches a hand-picked selection of high-powered entrepreneurs, salespeople, and other professionals his one-of-a-kind, under-the-radar persuasion blueprint. His name is Ross Jeffries. I'm honored and excited to welcome him to the show. Ross, thank you for joining us on Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you. That's one heck of an introduction. I hope I can live up to it. And I just want to say... As you're listening to me on this podcast today, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be your teacher and guide. I live for those moments when eyes open up and people can never go back to looking at your story and therefore your world the same ever again. So thank you for the opportunity, Louis, of letting me address your audience. I appreciate it deeply. You're quite welcome. And, um, you know, I, I just want to say I really love you. You have a great voice, a great speaking voice. Well, I'm a public speaker, and I'm also a very well-experienced hypnotist, so I had to train. I used to talk from up here. If you look at my earlier TV appearances in the 90s, I talked from up here, but I learned to make my voice resonant because I think a resonant voice is something that I know for a fact it 
influences people on the unconscious level to respect you and to give your message more gravitas, more weight, more due consideration. And it also really helps to pick up women. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, I just hope that it, uh, I don't go into a trance in the middle of this uh, interview. Well, <laughs> well, it's often the case that people, uh, it's often the case that a person can find yourself developing a trance, Lewis. Not because of anything that I particularly say, but because that part of your mind that's now opening to a new learning is eager to hear something that this is going to be of great value to you. So that's why it might happen. Okay. So I'm talking to Ross Jeffries, but does he exist? Mm. Mm. That, is a, that is one of the most intelligent and fascinating questions. Ross Jeffries is part living legend, part urban myth, part a character that I created and part someone who's organically me. Now to unpack that, I have to say that I started out, Ross Jeffries is not my legal name. Uh, doesn't mean I'm illegal. It simply means <laughs> I had a change in identity in, in 1987. I just had so much failure in my life. I could not get a girlfriend. I was in my uh, late 20s about to turn 30 and ready frankly ready to take my life because I just had spent years being lonely years not being touched by anyone and I remember having a vision of being in a dark tunnel underground miles underground and just having a ladder that I had to climb one rung at a time and it just hit me in a flash you know as as Paul my real name I'm just uh, a person I can be um, I can be beaten or forgotten or ignored but becoming a symbol to men who are struggling to the same thing, that could become an idea, become a myth. And so I created this Ross Jeffries character based, he's part Bugs Bunny, he's part, um, he's part the trickster character. There's an archetype in every culture of the trickster, someone who comes along and challenges conventional wisdom. And also Ross Jeffries grew out of lessons my mother taught me my mother shaped my thinking a lot one day i was sassing my mother i sassed her a lot i was maybe six years old she waved her finger at me and said kid if you don't knock it off you're going to become an iconoclast i said what's that she said an iconoclast is someone who goes around knocking over other people's sacred idols i thought i want to be that so is Ross Jeffries real? He's deeply real in the minds of the students who believe in the myth now since i've been doing this since 1988 for the younger kids who weren't even born and who read Neil's book, The Game. I am a legend. I hear them whisper it when I'm at a pickup convention, which I rarely go to. They'll walk by and say, there's the legend. There's the legend. And I've even had uh, podcast, yeah, podcast hosts say, wow, the legend. I'm, I'm be honored to have you on the show. So the answer to your question is um, Ross Jeffries is partially real. He's part creation and more importantly, and interestingly enough, he is what my fans and students have come to expect him to be. So I hope that's mm -hmm. a good answer to your question. No, it's a great, it's a great, uh, very articulate, very clear, yeah, very, very lucid answer. You answered part of the next question, but w when you look back on your childhood, uh, do you find other seeds of Ross Jeffries? You had just told us about yes. one, but yeah, yeah, yes. yeah tell us yeah. about yes. that. Yes, I absolutely do. I was raised in a family where intellect was rewarded, the ability to put together a good chain of thinking. And most importantly, again, my mother, <laughs> I don't have a thing with my mother, but my mother taught me to think outside the box. I and mean, here's what I mean. We had a, I had five brothers and sisters, and my cousin Paula lived with us. So there were six, seven kids at the table, plus my mom and dad, and everyone would argue. And the thing is, I would get attention by saying something like, I'm a communist, mom. And my mother wouldn't yell, she wouldn't get upset. She'd say, she'd say do you know what a communist is? And I'd say, no. She said, she'd say, all right, I want a book report about communism. By the end of the day tomorrow, if it's a good book report, you'll get a silver dollar. If it's a bad book report, you're grounded. <laughs> and so we were encouraged to say any idea. We were raised in a Jewish family, but if I wanted to be an atheist or a Christian, my mom never said that's stupid. She said, okay, tell me what it is. And my mother also gave me another big lesson. I would ask her a question and she'd say, look it up. 
because even though we were flat broke, I mean flat broke, we would eat plates of spaghetti with sauce for meals. We always had money for encyclopedias. Maybe it's a Jewish family thing. If I asked my mother a question, she'd wave at the encyclopedias dramatically and say, look it up. If it wasn't an encyclopedia, even though she had agoraphobia, she would drive us to the library. And if there weren't answers there, she'd say, you know what? You go be the one to find the answer. You make the answer. And I'll never forget that lesson. That really was part of my inspiration to keep going through all the confusion, all the struggle, all the times when people bombarded me with the word fraud. Uh, that went on for two or three years. Like, there's no way that you could use hypnotic language to teach men to get women excited and attracted to them, no matter what they look like or their social status or age. And then, once I built up a track record of people saying it works, it works, it works, people would say, okay, but it's bad. You're a, you're a, you're a hater. You're a monster. And my mother taught me another lesson. If you're not offending at least three or four people a week, you're not living your purpose. You're not living the way you should be living. So my mom, I have to say, you know, the way I was raised and the lessons I got from my mother, uh, my father was important in my life too. My father was, uh, had tremendous courage and he never quit. He had to work three jobs just to put food on the table. He was a war veteran who got wounded in fighting the Nazis. He was a medic and couldn't carry a gun. And my father said something very interesting to, to me. I, I'm on my parents here because I love my parents and my family deeply. They've been gone 10 years. I miss them every day. I was whining one day and my father said, son, history is not destiny. History is what happened. You make your destiny. Quit whining. Mm. And so I learned tremendous lessons. I, I, even though we had a deeply dysfunctional family in many ways, I developed the skill to extract the lessons. You have to be able to extract the lessons from your pain. Now, it's one thing to say it, to develop a discipline that allows you to do that, to develop what I call witness consciousness through a practice of meditation and reflection, something I teach all my clients to do. You have to be able to see those the pain arising, but not so much that it blinds you to the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Well, I love the answer. and uh, But my, my question on following that one would be, you learned resilience, you learned that positive mindset that people pay lots of money to learn in personal development courses from your parents. But what was it that led to the creation of Ross Jeffries, the seducer, the oh, that's I what I'm. That. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I stumbled on a discipline called NLP, neuro linguistic programming. I picked up a book in 1987. I thought this is ridiculous, woo woo nonsense. I sat down, read it. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of your first couple of minutes exposure to something. You think no way, and then within five minutes, ten minutes in, you stop and you think. I've got to know more about this. And the book blew my mind. I thought I had a vision. The vision, I really did right there. I thought this could solve my problems with women. So I started experimenting with little things from the book, uh, using certain phrases to get a woman attracted to me, dropping in what we call embedded commands to shape her decisions and then drive her behavior. And it failed and failed and failed. And one day, I don't know how vulgar I can get. Let's just say someone came in for an interview as a secretary, I was working in an office with a sole practitioner lawyer, just me and him and the secretary quit. He said, hire whoever you want. So we were interviewing. I thought, okay, Dr. Frankenstein, try out your stuff with this lady. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out it worked and it broke an eight year fast of me not even being touched by a woman. Please try to understand that kind of pain. And then I went, wait a minute, this really works. And then I thought, I'm tired of being a paralegal. I could write a book and help other guys get through this. And so I wrote a crappy little book that wound up selling like crazy. I got on all the TV talk shows because I know how to manipulate media. It's another skill I just picked up naturally. And that's how it really got going as, as a business concern and how I got going. I started to see results. I started to see results. And I remember thinking, you know what? I'm not leaving anybody behind. I tell my students this. I know the pain that you've been through. I know the pain of going to a family gathering and not having a partner and people wondering about your orientation or what's wrong with you. And, and so I thought, okay, I've got this. Now I'm going to teach it to other people. Wow. 
That is great. Now, who was the first woman who broke your heart? Oh, God. There's, there's <laughs> so many of them. You know what, Lewis? I, I, there were so many women who broke my heart <laughs> all through college. I want to say I'm grateful for them. I'd say their names, but I don't want to do that. But I know their names. I want to thank uh, uh, Leslie and Nina and uh, Danielle and Melody and all those women who just refused to go out with me or broke dates and all that. So many of them broke my heart or, or, or rather shattered my my sense of possibility, I can't even begin to name them. I really can't even begin to name them. Mm. I'm sorry I don't have a, a, a one-person answer to that question. That's okay. You know, my heart, I don't even like the metaphor of a heartbreaking. It, it just is a bad metaphor. I tell people, watch your metaphors. Someone with whom, the, the loss of whom I suffered great pain and a sense of loss, sure, maybe someone who did it to me uh, in a way I didn't. Can, can I be... Can I be absolutely transparent? Yeah, please. Great loves of my life, and some people are going to hold their nose, but screw it. My mother taught me, speak your truth and let the devil take the consequences. I had a Swedish girlfriend back when I was 49. She was 19 years old. Okay, gasp, judge if you want. Or men are going, cool, how'd you do that? Drop dead gorgeous. She looked like Scarlett Johansson, had a love child with Jessica Biel. I was so in love with her. We were in love with each other, and she broke up with me. I was devastated, just devastated. So <laughs> a 20-year-old Swedish girl was the one who probably kicked my head in the most. <laughs> but I should have seen it coming, but I don't care. Every bit of the pain was worth it because every bit of the love was amazing. Mm. I like that. Were you and are you currently married? I've never been married. I never wanted to be married. I don't want to be married. I saw so many bad marriages in my family and the devastating results of divorce, particularly on my younger brother. And my parents had an extraordinarily unhappy relationship. It was a very toxic environment. And finally, I'm a counterculture thinker. I'm a, I'm a contrarian. I Personally, if marriage makes you happy, that's great. I personally am of the opinion that humans are not hardwired for long-term monogamy. My personal view is we're hardwired for it from every maybe three to five years. And I never wanted children, so I don't see the point of getting married if you don't want children and you don't want a piece of paper between you and your partner of the state. Now, that said, I understand being in loving, committed, monogamous relationships. It's just hard to impress me sufficiently that I'll make the commitment. It's not that I'm not open to it. It's just that I'm hard to impress. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, I get you, man. I get you. Thanks for that honesty. Now, when sure. you cre when you created the seduction game or system, did yeah. you immediately feel the confidence to do it? Oh no, quite the contrary. No, 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 no. I was, uh, but I did pick up an attitude from one of my NLP teachers who said, "You don't necessarily have to be confident. You just have to be thorough, and you have to have a sense of humor." So one big mistake that people make in their lives, whether it's entrepreneurs or guys looking to meet gals or gals looking to meet guys, is they're confusing different kinds of confidence. There's performance confidence. You do something right a thousand times, so a thousand and one, you have a realistic expectation that you're going to get it right. The problem is a lot of people haven't done any performance yet, and they expect to be confident on the first try, and it doesn't work that way. So instead, they have to develop, and this is part of what I teach in my mindset coaching, you have to develop what I call acceptance confidence, which means you have to make best friends with uncertainty. You hold hands with uncertainty as your partner and you're willing to walk with your uncertainty without needing a guarantee. And here's the other special part that completes that thought. Without having any expectation or demand that the other person support you in your, in your effort. So if you're a guy and you're taking a risk and you're shaking your boots and you go to talk to a woman, she doesn't owe it to you to approve of you. So if you can walk into the unknown without a guarantee and give the other person radical permission to have their first response to you, then something wonderful will open up because people are not used to radical acceptance when they're rejecting you and not giving you what you want. They're mm. used to pushback. So when you give them radical acceptance and you're willing to walk into the unknown without a guarantee with them, 
that shines through because most people in this world expect the guarantee. When you can show up without a guarantee, and listen to me, salespeople and business people, when you can show up in front of people and not need a guarantee and have the compassion to let them have their first response to you, you will establish more than trust. You will establish admiration. Just stop and imagine a minute if within the first two or three minutes of talking to your prospect or your audience, they didn't just trust you. They admired you. They respected you. That, to me, is even more powerful than trust or rapport. Yes, trust and rapport are necessary, but even more powerful. Get, you can be admirable. You can have the, win their admiration in, in, in minutes. And to me, this has a profound impact. If you, if you can imagine as you listen, having that ability to create that admiration with, with your team or the people who you're selling or your audience in minutes, that's one of the things that I can teach. Because I had to learn to do it for myself. And I hope that distinction between performance confidence and acceptance confidence is an important. I made it clear. Oh yeah, listen. I I think that um, if people people could leave the podcast right now, and they would have gotten more than their money's worth. Please um, don't. <laughs> no, I don't think they're going to. Um, uh, this is a fascinating and I feel very authentic discussion. Um, you're a very lucid person, and um, it's great. You know, I took a course in personal development called Enlightened Wizard. And oh, wow. yeah, and one of the declarations was, I am a wizard. I am comfortable with chaos, ambigu oh. ambiguity, and the, and the unknown. I love it. Yeah, man. I love it. Was this chaos magic? Were you learning chaos magic? Who, who was the... Who who taught the course, if you don't mind my asking? I love it. You probably know his name. It's T. Harv Eker. Oh, wow. Of course. No, who, uh, everyone knows T. Harv Eker. That's amazing. And not only <laughs> that, but T. Harv actually created that particular course himself. And when he taught it, and I was in the, in the group, it was a five-day camp, he said, the reason I'm teaching it this time is because I've been living too long in my warrior energy, and I need to learn these things again. Yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah. It was just fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that would be the topic for a different conversation. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, were there, name some of the major obstacles to your success. Uh, major obstacles, uh, I'm just going to be utterly transparent. Hold on just one second because someone's trying to reach me on Skype and I've got to put myself on. Um, do not. No, we'll continue. Major yeah. obstacles to my success. Um, I had a lot of shame, a huge inferiority complex. I hated the way I looked. I have offered, often, you know, I'll just be very transparent with you. I have a family history of depression, so I've had to struggle with that and find ways to get out of that. And uh, I tend to be very, very, very brilliant and, as you can hear, a really great ex exponent of ideas. But staying organized, I have assistants to help me do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. I tend to be very, very brilliant and love coming up with ideas and creating ideas. And I have coaches and assistants to help me do the follow-through because I don't enjoy the follow-through as much as I do the creation. I can do them both, but this is what you're hearing now is my genius zone. You're hearing me right now in my genius zone, where I do things I do so well. Well, I hear you, man. I, I, I relate to it. I really understand it. It's like Einstein, who, you know, valued more than anything else the world of the imagination. And the world of the imagination is not always a world of order. It is definitely not organized. What was the biggest life mistake you ever made? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> life mistake I ever made. I tend not to dwell on my mistakes. So it's really a question that's difficult for me to answer. I think the biggest life mistake I ever made was trying to shield myself from being vulnerable, thinking that I had to go around and be the smartest person in the room. 
And that was not an easy one to see because I was raised to think that I was the smartest person in the room and I am a pretty intelligent guy. And because of that, I early on in my career, I antagonized a lot of people that right now could be thriving partners with me. I shut myself off from my community by unnecessarily antagonizing people because I had a crying need to be right. And there's nothing wrong with being accurate. Accurate's great. You have to be accurate, but being right means you have to make the other person wrong. Not just their argument, but make them wrong as a person. And I had to give that up. I, I learned through my meditation practice that that was one of the great spiritual poisons that had been infecting me. And through my meditation practice, I'm working through those, those poisons of envy and resentment and regret and needing to make other people wrong and converting them into compassion and happiness regardless of circumstances. Very difficult thing to do, and it takes work, but it's possible. I love it. I just love what you said and the way you said it. And uh, you'll love this. T. Harv Eker used to very frequently say to us, you be right, I'll be rich. <laughs> uh, well, yes, no, I think being accurate is is fine. You have to be accurate if you're going to do business, if you're going to do science. We have to be accurate in our measurements. There's a difference between being accurate and being righteous. And I don't like the word right, but how about righteous and needing to make other people wrong in their essence and make yourself better than as them as a person. That's indulging in things that are that are totally not useful. Uh, the reason I pause for a second, I heard this yeah. be this beeping. What I know. We have trucks out there. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. My apologies. My yeah, apologies. yeah. You probably have your windows open, right? Because we heard. Let me si close it. Let we me heard, close it. We heard sirens before. <laughs> I know. Well, I live by a hospital. Let me close it. Okay. Well, if I close it, the cat will cry. So let me move into another room. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> Since we don't have video, I don't need to worry about what people are seeing and what they're not. My apologies. Are you okay. pleased with the interview so far? I love it. Absolutely love it, my friend. Cool. Okay, go ahead. Fantastic. How did Paul Anderson, the director of Magnolia, find out about you? Well, the story goes, and I read this in Creative Screenwriting. It was an interview with Paul. The story goes that he was in a sound studio, and he was listening to a conversation between two sound engineers. And they were talking about their problems with women. And one of them said, you know, Ross Jeffries would say, and I'm going to say, I can't, can I say an obscenity? Yeah, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, the, he said, one of the sound engineers said that Ross Jeffries would say, respect the cock. <laughs> right, right. And I never said any such thing, but it got him intrigued. And he thought, who's this Ross Jeffries? And he looked me up, and I think he had the idea for Magnolia cooking in the back of his mind, and he thought, I need a character based on this guy in the movie. And he tapped Tom Cruise to play that character. Now, just to answer the question that may come up, I never saw a penny from it. I never got to meet Tom, <laughs> but they used some of my early stuff word for word, and I had I used it to my advantage. I got a date with my intellectual property attorney who would not go out with me because I'm a, a client. I was a client at the time. I said, Janine, this is business. You have to go with me to see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I got tons of, you know, you got to, hey, a good, smart entrepreneur or whatever, sees the opportunity and moves through that little crack of light as fast as they can and doesn't wait around. You got to be, you, you know, I don't want to go off key here, but I have a pretty shameless attitude. I was hanging out with one of my VIP pickup girls students and he challenged me. We went of all places to the Hare Krishna temple for the free vegetarian feast. And he said, pick up a girl here. So I saw a beautiful blonde lady sitting across the other side of the temple. I just walked over to her. She was in conversation with someone else. I said, excuse me, I apologize for interrupting the conversation, but I had to tell you, you are a radiant human being. And boom, off to the races it went. So I didn't care. He said, wow, that was amazing. Didn't you care that people were watching? Or I said, no, I don't care. You have to be shameless. I learned a big lesson when I watched my father pass from this world. I was with him when he took his last breath. And I remember looking at him after he passed and thinking, there's the shell of my father. There's his shell. All the things that he worked for, all of his dreams, they went somewhere, but they're not here. And so I remember thinking, your time on this earth is limited. 
do as much as you can do. Push your talents without harming anybody else. Because at the end of the day, here's what I know, Lewis. At the end of the day, I'm 58. I hope I have another good 20 healthy years. When they click out my lights, I can look back and say one thing, a couple of things. But I can look and I can say, I changed the world. There are tens of thousands of guys out there who would have died lonely or lived lonely had it not been for me. I took my pain, my, uh, my tremendous pain and my confusion, and I translated it into something that created a whole culture. How many people can say that? Very few people can say it. I agree. I love it. It's, um, it's a wonderful, wonderful perspective. Was the character Frank... T.J. Mackey, how much of that character was like you at the time? I think that character was a wildly exaggerated version of the way I appear when I'm doing my seminars. Some of the stuff he got right. He got my idea that when I teach I'm a superhero, he got that metaphor. He got a lot of things right, but a lot of it was exaggerated. I'm not misogynist. I don't use uh, that much foul language. <laughs> <I just don't. laughs> Just enough to keep myself entertained. I don't have a mouth like a sailor. If you need to have a potty mouth to impress people, something is off in your script. Mm-hmm. Did, did you actually meet Paul Anderson himself? I never met or spoke with anyone associated with the movie or the production. Mm. I do have a big picture of Tom Cruise and then a picture of me next to him. That was an article written about me in a Dutch magazine. And, you know... The only thing about Tom is he's 5'4", I'm 6'2", so they could have got someone taller to play me. I'm a big guy. He's a little dude. Did you like Magnolia? I loved it. Yeah. I loved that movie because uh, that movie was actually inspired by the works of Charles Fort. Charles Fort was the X-Files of his day, and he wrote about coincidences and phenomena like frogs falling from the sky and rain of rains of fish so that's why you saw the frogs falling from the sky in that movie mm-hmm. yeah it was it was wild i remember it very vividly and i, I remember also the late um what is it uh seymour what's his name seymour hoffman seymour, seymour hoffman that but that that's part of his name what's his name philip some philip Fair, that's hoffman. it philip seymour hoffman i should yeah, remember great oh god and William H. Macy was in it. He one of my all-time favorite actors. He was in it. It had an incredible... Julianne Moore was in it. Great, great cast. Ah, Julianne Moore. She makes your seduction techniques worth their weight in gold. <laughs> I don't know. No comment. By the way, <laughs> Kitty, Kitty is absolutely in my lap and purring. So if you hear purring, folks, that's my Kitty. How have your views on life and women changed over the years? My views were dramatically changed by my meditation practice I re and watching my mother and father pass from the world. I really got the profound experience, not just as a mental construct, but direct experience that humans are basically all in the same boat and that our time is short and we need to find happiness irrespective of conditions, happiness that's not dependent on conditions. Very difficult thing to do. And my view of women is they're essentially the same as men. They just have different plumbing. And their psychology is a little bit different. My understanding of women, my profound, deep understanding, and it's only my map. It's not science and it's not true, but it's a useful map. Is that men and women are equally emotional. We have, we're just as emotional as women, but we tend to have our emotions in sequence. When we're happy, we're happy. When we're angry, we're angry. When we're sad, we're sad. Women have emotions about their emotions, so they can be curious <laughs> about their happiness. They can be turned on and horny, and they can be curious about their being turned on. They can feel impatient about their curiosity about their being turned on. So what makes it more problematic is I think women have emotions about their emotions. Now, you laughed, but I'm assuming, I don't know, probably a lot of your listeners are laughing. That's called the laugh of recognition. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've come up against that interesting complexity quite a few times in my life. <laughs> uh, you know what? My girlfriend, who I love quite a lot, sometimes she can tie me into knots verbally. <laughs> like, no matter what I do, it's the incorrect thing. <laughs> <laughs> so why do some people hate what you used to do? 
why do they hate it? Well, some people find it find an objection, I guess, religiously. It doesn't fit the religious views, in which case I say, yay, boy, howdy, that's great. Some people, and I confess my early marketing was misogynistic. I was very angry, so they don't like that. And some people get angry at what they think I'm saying rather than what I'm actually saying. So I think that those are the top reasons why people were pissed at me. Some people are still pissed at me. I, I used to have a snail mail newsletter. Everything's electronic now. But I used to have the hate mail. I'd say delicious hate mail. And anyone who sent me hate mail, I would always print the hate mail unedited because <laughs> I enjoyed it. Who knows? Mm. People get triggered. Look, there are a lot of buttons around money and a lot of buttons around sex. It just that's how it is. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I actually think that today people are actually more confused emotionally about money than they are about sex. And they're pretty confused about sex. Those are some huge buttons. You'd be hard-pressed to say which one is greater. I, 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 there's no way to test that. But no, they're they're, both, we, we'd agree they're both big buttons. Oh, yeah, very, very big buttons indeed. I think I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask this anyway. Did extreme negative criticism affect your self-image? No, no. Oh. My viewpoint is your hate makes me stronger. <laughs> your, your hate, I would say that your hate makes me stronger. <laughs> I love that. What attracted you to Buddhism? Oh, well, that's an interesting story. I, in 2006, was having a terrible time, profound suicidal depression. My mother had just been diagnosed with liver cancer. I ended a 16-year business partnership with someone who was like my father to me, and I was deeply depressed. And a friend of mine at the time said, let's go to this bookstore. I grabbed a book on meditation by a guy named Charlie Tart. Charlie kept mentioning my teacher. It was Charlie's book, but he kept mentioning my teacher, Shenzhen Young. So I thought, hmm, let me look this guy up. I got a hold of his audio series, and it blew me away absolutely blew me away and I really began to understand the teachings in a way that was scientifically and clearly presented without any woo-woo, without any sloppy thinking. And it drew me to it. And I also have to say, watching my parents suffer and pass through this world, pass from this world, I got the message that life has suffering in it, that it's woven into the fabric of life. It doesn't mean that's all there is. But knowing how to be compassionate for yourself and others and at the same time pursue your goals is a balance. And one of the things I'm proud of as a coach is I can teach that balance because I live it. I have to live it for myself to survive. Mm -hmm. We teach that which we most need to learn and most need. I'd add we teach that which we most need to practice. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Today... You help many business professionals master the art of persuasion. Yes. What are some of the biggest mistakes that pros make oh my when, God. It, when it's time to close a sale? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, there are a couple of them. But the first one is they have too much empathy. Empathy can destroy your sale. Now, I know that's very counterintuitive, completely counter to what you're taught. But empathy can, can, can destroy a sale, and I'll tell you why. If, you empath if you're empathizing with the prospect, with the buyer, then you're actually feeling what they're feeling. So if they start to feel hesitation and doubt, you're going to suddenly start to feel the hesitation and doubt. If you've ever been in that experience of you're about to close and for some reason you start to feel a little hesitant, a little queasy, it's not because you're afraid to close. I know a lot of people have taught you that. It's because you're in such rapport, you're so in tune with the client, you're picking up on their emotions and you just don't know it. So they're missing a key skill set. And that skill set is the ability to see, to see where your client or prospect is at without having to go there for yourself. So that's a skill set that's missing. It's a big mistake that people make. Now you asked, repeat the question again, because I believe you asked for three. Uh, I said no. I said no. What is no? What I said. What are some of the biggest mistakes? Okay. I just, a, yeah. a, a second big mistake is there. They view an objection as the last word. One of the principles I teach in my coaching program and in my individual coaching is never take a prospect's first response as written in stone. It's almost always a response to what they're thinking, feeling, or believing in the moment, and it's almost always subject to change. So your prospect, client, whatever, 
is going to have their autopilot responses. If you take it at face value, then you're going to be stuck. You're either going to press or you're going to give up or you're going to argue. And that's not what works. So you have to be prepared for the quote objection, close quotes, and know how to use it as sort of verbal jujitsu to take the momentum of their objection and turn it into the momentum of their buying. And the third really big, big, big mistake is they just want it too much. One of the attitudes I teach, and they're like 10 power attitudes, but one of them is you're interested in the sale, you're invested in your skills. And a breakfast of bacon and eggs, <laughs> the pig is invested, the chicken is interested. So <laughs> you'll now, this is part of, yeah, it's part of my skill set as a teacher. I use metaphor, and you'll never go back to understanding the whole thing the way you used to. The, now, there, there are a lot more, and I prefer, you know, when I train to talk about what does work. But those are the big, big fumble, fumble errors big fumble errors. Beautiful. You know, one of the things, uh, as you were talking before about how empathy can be carried too far, my feeling, uh, being in network marketing, is that we actually do a disservice to the prospect because we lose the ability to help them, to guide them beyond their fear and their resistance to, to something that actually is beneficial for them. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely correct. Yeah. And I'll tell you another little piece. People don't know how to make good decisions nowadays. They don't even know if they're making a good decision or not. No. They're so distracted and they have such a lack of trust in their officials and institutions, and rightly so, correctly so, as so they should, that they don't know. So you hear objections like, I need to think it over. Well, is it a request to think it over or is it a request for clarity? So I'll turn that around and say, of course it's important that you get clarity that this is the decision that you want to make. And that's because seeing an opportunity and not letting it go by, taking it for the reasons that make sense to you is important. So because that's the case, what are the questions would I need to unpack for you to recognize you want to move forward today? Now, that's loaded with embedded commands and hypnotic words and suggestions. But the key to that is you're pausing a minute and saying, wait, do they really need to think it over or are they asking for clarity and certainty? So you restate it and, and say what their actual emotional need is, which is clarity and certainty. It's never about thinking it over. It's about getting clear on the value proposition and having a sense of certainty that the value is greater than the cost where do I sign? <laughs> well, well, here's the thing to do. I know you've got a huge audience. And right now I'm in the position in my life where I only work with high net worth individuals or people who already have a crush it attitude. So if you have a crush it attitude, you're already doing well in your business and you want you and or your team to take it to the next level. It's easy. I do make space in my calendar three times a week to do discovery sessions by Skype. You go to consultross.com slash apply. That's consultross.com slash apply. Now, I want to make something very clear. I'm also available to speak to groups. I'm a great public speaker, and I can convey these principles in talks. And finally, again, I wish I could work with everybody. Right now, my calendar is loaded, so it really is only for people who are doing quite well. You'll see some questions there uh, when you go to the application on, on where you're at income level, net worth level, but I have to see that in order to determine if um, you're someone uh, that's for me to work with. So go ahead, go to consultross.com slash apply. We'll see if you're a match and then we can schedule a discovery session with you. Fantastic. In your opinion, what is the most powerful way to overcome objections? You kind of touched on that as well, but if you can elaborate more, it'd be great. There are two tools I teach. One is meaning reframes and one is agreement frames. So meaning reframes take the form, it's not X, it's Y. So if someone says it's too expensive, you'll say the issue isn't the expense. The issue is your ability to stop and see the return on investment that makes the expense virtually meaningless. So being that that's the case, let's have another look at this so you can clearly see for yourself. 
this is something you want to do. Now that's loaded with suggestions. You can clearly see for yourself, this is something you want to do. So that's one form. It's not the issue isn't X, the issue is Y. The other is what I call agreement frames, which is an advanced technique that's a little difficult to go into. But another one, I'll give you one freebie because I like this. It's counterexamples. Like if someone says, I need time to think it over, I do a counterexample. I say, have you ever taken a long time to make a decision and it still turned out wrong? Maybe it's not about the time it takes, but about the clarity you need to stop and see this is something you really want to do. So with that in mind, let's have another look at what this can do for you and how the numbers actually work out. Do you see how that works by doing oh, a counterexample? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's also something called a truism. A truism, it's everyone has had the experience of taking a long time to think about something and it still didn't work out. So they can't disagree with it. So it's a counterexample with a truism thrown in. Now, I know this is a lot for people to absorb. But again, if you think you can, if you're thinking you're the kind of person who I'd want to work with and you're already crushing it, and also especially if you want me to speak to your group, I love speaking and doing trainings as much as I do the private work and love the private work. I love to do speakings and trainings, particularly if you're a network marketer and you can fly me in to do a training for your team. I love to do it. I just love speaking and training. So it's consultross.com slash apply. And all the information on there, I keep strictly confidential. I don't share with anybody. It's it's put in a, a lockbox. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you again. What is the false profession of ignorance? Oh, I love that one. Well, the false profession of ignorance is a way to set up the person's mind and now open your mind, audience, as you hear this, to take in hypnotic suggestions. At the same time, making it look like you're being humble. So if I wanted to suggest to you that you want to buy from me today, I'm not going to say, I know why you should buy from me, Lewis, and it's because A, B, and C. Why wouldn't I be that direct about it? Why wouldn't I just say, I know that this is for you, and here's the reasons why? What, what would be wrong with being that direct? Well, I think it would make me defensive it would it would make right. me feel like uh you know right. also uh you're 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 presenting yourself as smarter than me etc right. you're making me wrong in a way right exactly so the false profession of ignorance is what i call a softener it removes the need to be defensive so it goes something like this it, it, i'll say something like i can't tell just exactly when or how you'll stop and find your own reasons to find this something that you're growing more interested in. But as that's happening, I just want to say I'm happy to be the person to be here by your side, guiding you along to that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you know, you know, the beauty of it is, I mean, some that, that it's actually. I mean, some people, oh, you know, he's he's manipulating. Well, yeah, but, sure. but, but you are, but but when I hear it. I have I, I'm my consciousness says that's good because yeah because well here's the here's here's the really cool thing I just had a client a very high net worth VIP client who does wealth management he was terrified because he had to give a talk in front of a bunch of millennials he said Ross I don't know how to public speak how do I get these people to trust and believe in me when when they're millennials and I'm an older guy, don't worry, I got it covered, I got it handled. So I showed him how to use the false profession of ignorance in the first two minutes of the talk, and those people were riveted to what he had to say. And throughout the talk, they were unconsciously finding reasons on their own. You notice in that sentence I said, find your own reasons, which is a command to the unconscious mind to dive down Go into hypnotic trance and do a search and come up with all your own reasons why you want to go along with it. Mm -hmm. Really, if this sounds complex when I coach and teach, I unpack it so it's simple. Anyone can do it. You have to take it apart into pieces. You know, Ross, what I'm thinking is the only time that I would find it objectionable is if I'm doing that to someone and I know in my heart that what they're going to say yes to is actually going to harm them. Well, of course, but but course. if but but if it's not, then I it's great because people are there engaging with you because they want to find a reason to say yes. And as a matter of fact, I sometimes tell the teams of salespeople I train, 
think of yourself as not a salesperson, but a decision service technician. Because mm-hmm. you're not selling your product or your network marketing opportunity, whatever it is. You're selling decisions and good feelings. So think of yourself as a decision service technician. You're going to service that person to help them make a good decision. Because I'll say it again, very few people know how to make a good decision. They just don't, and they don't know that they are making a good decision. Exactly. You know, when I was working with my team at one point, I know that there's a discomfort in some people about the the language of, oh, okay, now we're going to close, bringing a person to a close. So I thought about it, and I used a different concept. I said, why don't we look at it as bringing a person to that point of harmony hmm. in, instead of closing? Hmm. Because there's a conflict there. How about this? Bringing their opportunity to full completion. Hmm. In, in fact, I even taught this reframe. Instead of thinking of cone calls, what have you thought of opportunity, uh, uh, extending opportunities today? Uh, or you thought of yourself as an opportunity extension technician. Okay, instead of making cold calls, I'm going to offer opportunities. Yeah, 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 sure. Language Absolutely. is powerful. Watch your metaphors. Well, the reason that I particularly love this is that literally, I believe that every single word we say is creating a story yep. of some It's 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 tinged with... With emotion and, and judgment, etc. So when you change the language, you change the story, and that can be profound. Language, here's my what I know. Language structures consciousness, shapes decisions, drives behavior. Mm. So it is extraordinarily powerful. Mm-hmm. Extraordinarily powerful. On that note, what is process language? Process language is what I demonstrated to you just before. It's language that appears to be saying something specific, but in fact is vague, and it's designed to capture the imagination of the unconscious mind of the other person so they fill in the blanks. So let me give you an example of something that's not process language. If I said, you know, today I'm going to show you why investing with me will bring you 15% more in returns using triple A rated debentures that are security backed investments and it's structured like this and you'll want it because you'll be able to use it to buy that new house blah 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 too specific but if I said you know before I get going leading you on this discovery today of your opportunities I'm not sure at which point you'll think to yourself wow this is something I might really want to do and I also don't know the reasons why you can find that happening but as that's taking place, will you make me one promise? Will you promise me you'll ask the questions that let a person recognize a great decision is going to be made? Would you all do that for me? <laughs> now, Lewis, did I say anything specific? No. But did it sound like something that's grammatically well-formed? And you know you're the host of this show, but if someone was sitting in the audience... They're going to be in a trance. Now imagine, just imagine in the audience just for a second, wherever or however you're listening to me on your phone, I don't know. If you have that ability to create that kind of trance of attention and a trance of them finding their own reasons to believe in you, if you do it within the first three minutes, whether it's a sales call or, or it works great in front of audiences of people. It works fabulous in front of audiences, just like I've been using it throughout this podcast with your audience and with you. Well, I love it because uh, when you asked me, did I say anything specific, what I was thinking of, the power of it is that as I was listening to it, it's making me feel empowered. Right. You know, right. And, and, and yeah, and you, so when you do that, you know, the person is going to be drawn to you. Exactly right. And on an unconscious level, it's doing something else. Here's the real trick. I'm, a, you know, I'm actually a little reticent because I'm afraid your your people listening will go, "Wow, this is so much value. I don't know what to do with it." But here's the other thing it's doing. It's asking them to do you a favor and asking them to share. It's a simple favor, which is simply to raise their hand and ask questions. Now, this is what I call creates an implied relationship. They're implied relationship verbs. So, do you share with people you don't trust? No. So when I ask them to share, and do you do favors for people you don't trust? No. 
So the minute they buy into that idea that sh that they're doing me a favor and they're sharing something of value when they ask questions, I'm taking a behavior they're going to do, which is ask questions, and I'm tying it to them reaching the conclusion that I'm someone who they have a relationship with already. So the meaning of asking the question isn't, I don't believe this guy or I'm skeptical. The meaning of asking the question is, I have a relationship with this trusted authority and now I want his help in deciding uh, the exact reasons of how to do what he wants me to do. It's really clever. There's so many tools going on at the same time. Uh, <laughs> I love doing this. If I could teach, if I could do nothing all day but teach and hang out with my kitty cats and see my girlfriend, that's what I'd do. <laughs> well, um, why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> yeah, man. Why not? Where do you see yourself in five years? You see, you anticipated that question. <laughs> yeah. Where I see myself in five years is having a booming public speaking career. I love to speak in public. I see other people speak, and God bless them, and they're really polished. But I think they honestly don't have one-tenth of the knowledge I have of what works uh, particularly in the business and real estate worlds and, and network marketing, I'll tell you why. They're really great, but they have myopia because they're in that business. I'm coming from outside that business, having done the most difficult thing in the world, which is I've taken guys who are who can't even talk to a woman, taken them up an amazing learning curve of rejection, taught them how to be charming and to go where they really want to go. So I think I bring a different set of ideas and a different perspective. So I see myself having an absolutely thriving speaking career where I'm teaching and traveling and doing what I love most. And hopefully I'll still be healthy and I will be blessed with a really great partner. I love my partner right now very much. I don't know if she's the partner for me, but she contributes a lot and we love each other a lot. That was, I got blessed. Someone dropped something, someone in my lap without me even having to look for her. Fantastic. You know, before, earlier, you said, I hope I have another good 20 years. And I'm thinking, hey, buddy, why don't you extend that to another 50 years? I mean, if you're following anything uh, that they're doing at Singularity University, Peter Diamandis, that's not an unrealistic goal. I don't know. The answer to the question is, I have my own limiting beliefs there. My, my family, doesn't mean me, has a history of heart disease and cancer. So I don't know. As long as I don't fall apart the way my parents did, they aged uh, in a way that was not pleasant to watch, mm -hmm. then, then I'm happy with it. But I love doing what I'm doing now, uh, reaching out and offering value and spreading ideas. What my mother said, being in a, the other thing my mother said to me, I know we're wrapping up here, but I love my mom. I miss you to this day terribly. You were my greatest teacher. One day, and we're going to hear sirens coming by. Sorry, I live by a hospital. My mother said to me, you're going to be a Johnny Appleseed of ideas. I said, who's Johnny Appleseed? She said, he went from town to town, taking little apple seeds and growing. Then the towns grew apple trees. So I love being a Johnny Appleseed of ideas. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love that image. Uh, what? Uh, do you have a favorite book? Or books? I have many favorite books. One of them I ask all my students to read has nothing to do with business. It's called Prometheus Rising by Robert Anton Wilson. And it's all about how people construct their own realities based on their beliefs and also has to do with different brain circuits and how we open up those brain circuits. Great book. What's the and, author's uh, name again? What's the author's Rob name? Robert Anton, A-N-T-O-N, Wilson, W-I-L-S-O-N. Subtitle of that could be, Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Yeah, it could be. And uh, what are some of my other favorite books? My niece, Vanessa Van Edwards, who you might want to have on your show, she just wrote a great book called Captivate. So I have to plug my niece. <laughs> it's called Captivate? Yep, one word, Captivate. Yeah, I'd love to connect with her. She brings um, one half of what you're bringing to the show. She'll she's, definitely... a br she's a brilliant young lady, and she's kicking her uncle in the ass when it comes to entrepreneurship. I'm very proud of her. <laughs> okay, we'll talk more about that. Do you, what, do you have a favorite quote? 
Uh, yes, it's from my mother. <laughs> Again, my mother. Okay. <laughs> A pickup girl's girl who loves his mommy so much. If you dip your sunglasses in shit, even the roses will look brown. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And the other one is from Voltaire. This inspired me as a very ugly teenage boy. He said, give me 10 minutes to talk away my ugly face and I will bed the Queen of France. Ooh, say that again. Say that again. Give me 10 minutes yeah. to talk away my ugly face and I will bed the Queen of France. Oh, man. <laughs> That's Voltaire. 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 Yeah. <laughs> this is fabulous stuff, man. And uh, now I got to get your mother's full name because I want to give her credit. Oh, my mother's uh, full name, may her memory be for a blessing. I have my students plant trees in Israel in her memory. My mother's name was Sylvia, S-Y-L-V-I-A. Now I'm going to be sad this afternoon missing her. I'm getting emotional here. I miss my mom and my dad very, very much. Um, Sylvia Ross, R-O-S-S. -S. Ross is actually my real last name. Okay. Give her credit. May her memory be for a blessing. I don't know if you're Jewish or not, but uh, no. Uh, although, although when I and I'm Italian, but when I grew up in New York, everyone thought I was a Jewish intellectual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It, it, I went to City College of New York, and I had a an acerbic wit, and 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 I remember meeting girls, and they go, "So you're Jewish, right? No, come on. Uh, you you got to be. You're a Jewish intellectual. No, I'm not. Okay." Anyway, how can people contact you? Okay, once again, if you're already leading a successful business, a thriving business, or you're a really high net worth individual is ready to go to the next level, love to work with you. Also, if you want me to speak to your team, I love doing public speaking. Go to consultross.com slash apply. If you'll put that in the show notes, I'll appreciate it. Please I will. bear in mind... Please bear in mind, all your information is kept strictly confidential. We, we, you know, this is this is serious business to me. And you'll be taken to an application form. It's very brief. You can fill it out in three minutes. And if I like what I see, I'll give you a link, and we can get you on a Skype discovery session and see what we can do. Wonderful. Is there anything you'd like to offer to other people who may not be high net worth individuals? Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. Go to consultross.com slash saleskillers, S-A-L-E-S-K-I-L-L-E-R, mm -hmm. saleskillers with an S on the end, saleskillers, S-A-L-E-S-K-I-L-L-E-R-S. -L -L -E and that is a report on, I think, the three top sales killing mistakes that you and or your team might be making. Thank you. That is great. Well, Ross, any final words at all that you'd like to leave people with? Yeah, live large, fall, fail forward. Live large, fail forward, and no matter what happens, put your cats above yourself because that's where they're going to put themselves anyway. <laughs> <laughs> My friend, I can't thank you enough. I mean, not only for the value, the authenticity you offered but for the entertaining way in which you presented <laughs> yourself. Oh, yeah. You are a consummate entertainer, my friend. <laughs> I'm a failed comedy writer and a failed stand-up comic, so thank you for the compliment. Oh, man. Thank you. Thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time with me and Ross Jeffries today. Ross gave you life-changing knowledge. Definitely use it to enrich your own life. Then pay it forward. Let people know that they can enjoy this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. Remember that at the website, I have created a free gift for you, another life-changing ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Take advantage of the valuable books that Ross spoke about today. Go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and download for free 
your favorite audio book and get a one-month free trial to all of Audible's wonderful service. Let me know what you took away from today's show. Also, let me know what you'd like to see in future podcasts. Send your comments to lewis at changeyourstorypodcast.com. Ross spoke a lot today about the power of reframing. Begin to use the insights that he gave you, the secrets that he revealed, to start creating a new frame, a more empowering frame for your own life. Begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Luis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.